0: You're listening to a sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. Kids should go to school. That's what we're going to
1: do. I haven't flipped flopped. I
2: said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no
3: and i am stuck to it. I didn't need to do this already done a
0: lot of war for the election.
3: The English fought a civil war over this this matter.
0: Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble.
3: I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money.
1: What
0: we want is
3: more learning
2: in schools and less activism in schools.
3: Issues that perhaps may be controversial today.
0: Represent.
3: Represent. You're listening to Represent. You are listening to Represent. You and certainly we are. we are here.
0: Welcome. Welcome.
3: <laughs> so we are super excited to get started today because we have a special guest in the studio. It's another interview.
1: We've
0: had Ooh. a few interviews
3: lately and we're not stopping yet. We we're have smashing it. Walter Marsh. Welcome, Walter. We are so glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Walter Marsh is a journalist based in Adelaide with a background in history and culture a former editor and staff writer at the Adelaide Review and Rip It Up. Obviously, just, you know, SIN's state brothers, like, you yep. know, the equivalent... I forgot what the word is, the, but you know what I mean? counterparts.
1: Yes. <laughs> They've closed the down, though, so I hope you guys are doing better.
3: Oh. oh. Well, we're still here Touch for now. Yes. Hey, how'd Radiothon go? We need go. <laughs>
1: Well, how did the
0: first one go?
3: <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and obviously, your writing has appeared all over the place. The Guardian, The Monthly, The Saturday Paper... You're everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the real reason we're here today is you've just written a book um, about Rupert Murdoch, the name on everyone's
0: lips.
3: (laughs) Um, Freddie, you had a first question that we discussed earlier.
0: Yeah, we did because I'm a big fan of this particular thing so I'd be remiss to not ask about it. I think (laughs) Naya knows where I'm going with this and I didn't even tell her about the question. Have you watched Succession?
1: Uh, It'll shock you to learn that, yes, I have watched Succession. And as I was watching the last season of Succession as well, I was thinking, oh, this book is perfectly done.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, how much do you think sort of like the TV show, what you've sort of found from
1: your research for your book, how much do you think the TV show gets right? Uh, well, the the fun... Th- fun. The thing about <laughs> of this book that was really interesting is that obviously Succession is draws a lot from, you know, other big media dynasties, but also obviously the Murdochs are a big influence. But that's looking at, you know, the present day kind of power struggles with Lachlan and James and, and the big question of what happens when Rupert sort of shuffles off, I guess. But this book sort of... It bookends it in the other direction, and it's the story of the last years of Keith Murdoch, Rupert's father's life, Uh, Mm. and then when he dies, you know, quite um, abruptly... It, Rupert at 22 is lobbed into this kind of almighty power struggle uh, coming up against Keith's colleagues at the Herald and Weekly Times you know, Melbourne, shout out <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, who, There was a
3: lot of like Flinders Street yeah. I, was, I was like, yeah, representation Well I was
1: just at the State Library and I walked past the Herald and Weekly Times newspaper reading room and then the Keith Murdoch Gallery which was closed I mean, they must oh, have heard damn. I was coming, I'm sure They um, knew, they <laughs> knew <laughs> Because so, Keith Murdoch had uh, he built up this company and he ran it for 30 years but he didn't actually own it. So the last few years of his life, he'd spent kind of uh, cannibalising the company from within to try and build up this little side company that was owned by the Murdoch family and could be passed on to Rupert, his son. Uh, In his will, in 1948, he said that he wanted Rupert to... He wanted to give Rupert the chance to live an altruistic, useful and full life uh, in the media. Uh, You know, he had high hopes, uh, and so this was the vehicle for him to do that. But... As a result, all of his colleagues at the Herald and Weekly Times, like Jack Williams, uh, who was supposed to be his successor as editor, um, they'd watched him. As Williams said, it was kind of skullduggery and unblushing theft. So when Keith dies, Rupert is faced with you know, all of his former colleagues who just want to claw it all back into the Empire, uh, and Rupert is, you know, he wants to hold on to it. So that's the kind of big succession battle, I guess, that this book deals with.
3: I mean, it was yep. interesting reading early on. It was sort of about, there was quite a big difference between Rupert and Keith, sort of in their personalities, I got the sense. But then, you know, when you sort of think about it from the way that they've both built their careers up, it's really just like father, like son. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're pointing at me. Yeah,
2: I am. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. <laughs> you wrote some great questions. I did. Ask away. Great <laughs> questions, thank you. Um, I'll just with my first, first one. I was very excited about this one. Newspapers keep disappearing Mm. we're seeing less and less how do you feel about that i mean having written this and so much of this is entrenched in newspapers Mm. and that physical thing you can hold Mm. what's it like for you doing all this research and then seeing it as it's disappearing
1: it's just kind of like it's another it's another world really so my experience of of the media so i'm i'm in my 30s uh Uh, and Adelaide where I'm from has been a one paper town since I think March 1992 so I was like you know just over a year old so I've only known Adelaide as a one paper town and that one paper which is Murdoch owned is now it's looking pretty thin these days Uh, and so I started this project as an honours thesis when I was studying history about 10 years ago and then very happily put it like in a drawer and didn't want to think about it for a while, or the Murdochs, but went out to work in the media. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, every place that I went to work, these kind of street presses, these magazines that had been running for decades, like longer than I'd been alive, they all tended to fall over just as I kind of got a job there. You know, correlation, not causation. I'm sure, um, but it was just a sign because you know they've been bought out by big international. Conglomerates and they tried to go digital and it had never worked and then they all kept falling over, leaving uh, Adelaide, like the rest of the country, way more concentrated. And so then when I finally went back and started writing this book to look at Adelaide and Australia in the 1950s where, you know, the news industry just employed hundreds and hundreds of people and, and thousands of hours of labour every week to churn out the news and it was consumed like en masse in a way that, you know, no one is consuming the same sources of media uh, in the same way as they did back then. So it was just, yeah, really fascinating. But then it was also interesting to see, you know, like a lot of the same kind of issues that we are navigating today, they're still being debated back in back in the 1950s. So like one thing that's interesting about the Rupert story is that he inherits this afternoon newspaper and the afternoon newspaper, its whole model is kind of geared towards like 1950s clickbait sensationalism because their whole model relies on selling papers to whoever's walking by and they need the catchiest sort of eye-grabbing headline that they can put on the front. Yeah, which lands them in a lot of hot water as you yeah, find it in the book. Yeah. There's that,
2: that great mention of um, when the cricketer died and they had that photograph mm. of the, the cricketer. Um, so you said you put you put it aside as the thesis mm. and then came back to it. What was the process of writing it? Did you did you do a whole lot of research and then sort of file through the research to write the book or were you starting the book and then and actually it what goes? was the catalyst to go back to it? Yeah.
1: Uh, good question. Well, uh, so Firstly, the the research, so I'd I'd gotten a good sense of what was out there when I was doing the thesis and obviously a university thesis, it's like 16,000 words and it's a different kind of thing. Uh, So there was a lot that I didn't put into it, but when I started thinking about it as a book, I kind of knew what was out there um, and what holes needed to be filled, what I needed to go and and look for more stuff. but what made me do it? It was kind of like 2019. And I was working at the Adelaide Review, and it was kind of a dream job in Adelaide as far as media jobs go. But I could kind of see that, you know, maybe that it wasn't a publication with a long future ahead of it. Uh, and then the pandemic happened, and uh, you know, everyone's working from home. Uh, I was, so the Adelaide Review was owned by this Spanish multinational media company, and I've you know foolishly looked up Spanish Google News to see how their media companies were going back in Spain. Not good sacked like half their workers yes. uh, and so I was like well I'm not going to be doing, looking at Spanish Google News again but also oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the back of my head I'm going to be thinking about what else I can do and what kind of bigger projects I can kind of use to, to push myself you know if there are no jobs in Adelaide in the media um, except for at a certain newspaper uh, on Weymouth <laughs> Street uh, I'll just find you know make opportunities for myself and that led me to writing the book about the company on Weymouth Street.
3: Interesting. I mean, do you think that the change from everyone consuming this sort of one or two maybe sources of news, like in the form of the paper, to everyone reading completely different sources, do you think that's an improvement? Or is there some level of value that comes from having a kind of like a individual source that everyone can then Mm. kind of discuss between themselves and think about themselves.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting, I guess, these days we, we think a lot about news and consumption and this kind of, everyone's very polarised, everyone's in their own little silos or their echo chambers. But the big case that forms, you know, a good third of this book, uh, it's called the, the Stewart Case. It's the trial of this errand man called Rupert Mac Stewart who um, is sentenced to death for the murder of a nine-year-old white girl and he's convicted on a confession which, you know, he says at trial and... I think a lot of people would agree was coerced, at the very least, was coerced out of him. Uh, But it's amazing to see uh, how this issue kind of drove, uh, divided South Australia right down the middle. And it was kind of a long newspaper line. So it was the advertiser, people who read that in the morning, were convinced of Stewart's guilt. And it was Murdoch's papers in the afternoon, the, the afternoon news, that were pushing and campaigning for the case to be reopened. And there was just no middle ground, really. Um, It was interesting, I actually found one source in the State Library, which was uh, like a lawyer who later became a judge who was just an observer of this Royal Commission that came out of it. And he, uh, in the weeks afterwards, he just wrote down these like 20 pages of notes describing everything that happened and, and making some pretty... You told me not to swear on air, but uh, some pretty cutting <laughs> remarks about, like, you know, character studies of all the main players of this royal commission. At one point, he says, "Oh, posterity, what a note to have left you!" And I'm just like, "This is a great note. Thank you very much." Um, but he puts it in an envelope and says not to be opened until 1985, or everyone, or until everyone I mention is dead. Uh, so it was unsealed in 2012, and I got my hands on it, and it was great. But he really, want, he's kind of taking great pains to show, to convey just how heated it was in those times and how it was yet yeah, governed by which newspaper you read.
3: Yeah, well, it's so interesting because, I mean, obviously everyone's like, oh, it's the most polarised we've ever been. Like, America will never one never again <laughs> be united, la la la. Yeah. But actually, you know, it was the case then as well. It's not just a new phenomenon.
0: Yeah. No, good point, Bridie. <laughs> so...
2: <laughs>
3: just it <thinking> out loud. <laughs> so I'm, li- I'm just.
0: I'm really pondering what Bridie just said. It was fantastic. So, um, of course, in writing this book, do you think there's like there's a lot of value in sort of knowing like uh, Rupert's sort of origins as the media mogul mm. that he is now? So, how much, I guess, um, do you believe that it's sort of in the public interest for the everyday Australian to know mm. about this gigantic figure in our lives, whether we know know how much influence he has or not?
1: Yeah, I mean. There was certain. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I found is it was already in public records, uh, was in transcripts, or it was on the record in various places. Some of them haven't been revealed necessarily, like his private letters with various people. Um, but and on some some level, when you when you're going through someone's papers and these very intimate correspondence, you kind of inevitably feel like, oh, this is kind of almost feels a bit prying but in this instance <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, pretty much everyone else in the world is is uh, at risk of one day having that big target on their back and you know having mm-hmm. someone you know, these days troll the through the your article social in the media New York yeah. post yeah so um you know in, in this case it it felt like probably fair game but it, in comparison to everything else that he's done i mean i don't want to undersell the book but <laughs> from like a from a reputational standpoint you know there's some really colourful some pretty embarrassing stuff as well uh for Rupert but relative to what has uh what he has wrought in his life but also across the world in the seventy years afterwards um it's uh I, I describe it as kind of a scale model of everything that comes afterwards.
0: Leveling out the playing field a little bit, considering what his papers have done to other people with <laughs> prying in a little bit. And you mentioned that a lot of it was archival, but you also did find a lot of new previously unseen
1: sources. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about uncovering all of that? Yeah, so I had that that great letter was all oh, those notes, those legal notes were one good example. But so for example the um the, the Stuart Royal Commission in that case, that then led into a seditious libel trial, which really forms the climax of the book. Mm. Um, I kind of framed the book as a bit of like a whodunit uh, as we build towards the point of of it, the big reveal of who wrote these sensational headlines that got them, you know, hauled before court. Um, and so that those transcripts were just sitting in the state library um, in South Australia, and when I opened. You know the first folder, and it's it's a it's a transcript of these police officers going into the news limited offices and interrogating the editor and then later Rupert himself and Rupert is just kind of stonewalling <laughs> refusing to admit that he's a journalist that he's involved with any of these things and it was just it just was such an interesting and dramatic scene that I thought, why hasn't anyone you know really run with this? There's been you know movies and other books, but I guess the thing about this story as well is because he's lived such a long and colorful and I think it 's fair to say pretty scandalous life. All the biographies that have been written in the last sort of forty years tend to, the this period becomes a very small small footnote uh there 's a few books in the seventies that delved into it, but I was finding there was all this material that just hadn 't been poured over and hadn 't been poured over with an eye to everything that comes afterwards in quite the same way so yeah, there was a lot of just it was just ripe for the telling, and I was really pleasantly surprised the more I kept digging how much the story just unfolded in front of me in a really self-contained way. And because Adelaide's such a small town then and today, uh, you had the same recurring characters coming back in. You know, Rupert, the, the seven-year period that he's in town, he's, they're kind of... Is pissing off a swear word.
3: I don't think so. No, that's he's, fine.
1: He's irritating the same people, the same institutions, over and over again over the seven-year period in this kind of small, insular, parochial town which is kind of like a crucible, I guess, that leads to this big trial at the end. So, yeah, I uh, don't know if that answers your question, but no, I, I had a lot of fun good. with it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, as you did say, he did have, like, a very long life. He's been... So he, he's sort he's of been everywhere. He's, he's st- <laughs> he, he is still kicking. That's Wait a minute, right. do I
1: have to check Twitter or X? <laughs> no, yes.
0: Someone, someone fact-check that real quick. Yeah. Not, but, um, no, and the story is so interesting and something that I couldn't wrap my head around a little bit, and I did no mention jokes. this before, um, okay. before we went on air, he was a bit of a leftist, mm. which I could not wrap my head around. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because
1: that's amazing to me, honestly. Yeah, so that's one of the other big arcs of the book as well. And one of the kind of uh, sort of novelties on which the book is built. I mean, the, the, you've got the cover in front of you there. He's he's bright red. Uh, you can't miss him in no. an airport or any, any good store. Um, <laughs> uh, and... Yeah, this—he's very left-wing. It's people often talk about how he had a bust of Lenin at Oxford. These little parts of his kind of mythology, but I wanted to dig into that and show how he, how he changed and became the man he is today. And so at Geelong Grammar and at Oxford, he was very outspoken, very brash and kind of clumsy in his left-wing views. He was very vocal about it all. I don't think a lot of people necessarily took him seriously because he was ultimately the son of a conservative press baron. Um, <laughs> but they called him like Como Murdoch, Comrade Murdoch, <laughs> Red Rupert. All these nicknames were flying around. Uh, and so the arc of the book really is to show um, once he was in the hot seat of running a newspaper company and coming up against these big... These big forces and realizing the kind of deals you have to make, the compromises you have to make to become the sort of press baron he would later, you know, grow to be. Unsurprisingly, he jettisons all those left wing views um, pretty quickly. And I think it's interesting to me in the context of the kind of empire he's built today, where, you know, he obviously his personal politics have. You know, there's an arc of conservative (laughs) uh, rightward leaning, but there's also, I I wouldn't be surprised if there's still a kind of pragmatic element where he maybe isn't necessarily a a true believer in these things, but he knows where his bread is buttered and knows how to cultivate power. Yeah. Um,
3: that's um, a perfect segue, actually, because when you were saying he was sort of stonewalling in this transcript with the police, it just made me think of a certain orange character from America. <laughs> um, and the call that they made in the last election to call Arizona for the Democrats. Mm. And obviously that kind of went very quickly up the chain of command and, you know, we heard, oh, Trump's called Rupert Murdoch to mm. try and get him. What do you think that would have been like?
1: I mean, it's well. I I've been in the same position as a lot of you guys now, reading it uh, because the book I you know that finished that in September last year. But re- I was writing it against the backdrop of you know all the January sixth and then Dominion and the election and you know the crikey lawsuits. Uh, try not to think too much about lawsuits when you're writing a book about <laughs> someone like Rupert Murdoch. Um, but all of those things were kind of swirling around in the background whilst I was delving into this seditious libel trial, um, sort of seventy years earlier, and there were just so many parallels and and to to bring it back to to what we've kind of discovered from that last set of uh, lawsuits you know it emerged that actually Rupert he he's not like hands on hands on these days but he's you know never more than a phone call or two away and he is making his voice heard about these very big these big calls and in the the Stewart case, it, it transpires, this is a spoiler alert, I'm giving you guys the good stuff here on, <laughs> uh, on a radio show, but it's revealed that it's, you know, Rupert who wrote the headlines that got them in all this hot water. And not only that, but he then wrote an editorial a couple of weeks afterwards when it was clear that the government were going to, you know, throw the book at them. Uh, he wrote this editorial on the front page uh, called Let's Set the Record Straight, Uh, He tried to kind of calm the waters a bit, just as in those depositions with Dominion where it seemed like he knew that... He recognised that Fox had kind of flown too close to the sun. He tried to backtrack a little bit in this editorial... Then when the trial comes around, the crown lawyers pull up this editorial and say, "This is kind of an admission of guilt," <laughs> yeah. and he throws it back, and they throw it back in Rupert's face. Uh, so he made a Sucked you know in. a big misstep there. I mean, they got off on all the charges in the end. Yeah, and he, yeah. You know, they, none of them went to prison. They became a well, Rupert became a big uh, global media. And baron. His Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can just leave it. Dot dot dot. You, you know, you, you yes, know so how it goes <laughs> from here.
2: Um. Jumping back to earlier, you talked about some of his life being a bit scandalous mm. um, and this is something I think i've I've thought about in this and other other things. You occasionally see people who have reached that like certain echelon in society where they they their behavior tends to become a little bit questionable. Mm. Do you think that we see a bit of sort of acceptance that when you become that big or that that, um, rich is the wrong word, um, but powerful or influential, there's this sort of, not expectation that there'll be sort of behaviour goes under the radar, but I know there's a little bit of like treatment of, he'd, he'd raise up a whole lot of people, but then he'd go and I think as the end of chapter three, um, he would go and help one of them, but not the other one because, you know, he's helping himself first.
1: That kind of untouchability, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's little anecdotes that I pepper throughout the book that show that he, even though he kind of fashions himself, he's one of the interesting things about this the book and the story is that he, he's coming up against this big establishment, these, the government, the liberal government, the big newspaper company that owns the Advertiser and the Herald and Weekly Times, his father's old empire, and up against that, he's kind of fashioned himself as this scrappy underdog sticking it to these big elites uh, and, you know, fighting the good fight, I guess, but it kind of explains this sort of foundational contradiction where he, at the same time, is doing all those things. He's the product of these institutions. He's the son of a press baron. He grew up, you know, so close to with this incredible proximity to power that none of us could really understand. Uh, And I think that is just a different way of moving through the world. And it's kind of a bit like Succession, the show did, you know, just conveyed... You know, was is it like not real people how they describe You are that, not
0: real people. Yeah. That was a good episode. Yeah, I
1: mean, yeah, very good. Um, but there like the 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 one example I have this is talking like scale model, but where he gets pulled over by um the police for speeding on mm. like Main North Road. <laughs> Adelaide shout Uh and uh and they pull him over and he's been speeding, he's like, Oh yeah, sorry and they let him on his way with a warning and then they keep following him and then he breaks the road rules again because uh, he 's just in such a hurry, and I think that was a small um story, but it also says a lot for the kind of person that he was, and that he
3: later became definitely just very self interested yeah. yeah without wanting to get so too- you see that when the embassy <laughs> so doesn 't let him through way. when he 's
2: young, and the embassy says he can't he can 't go i can 't remember where he's going, and he 's like he goes and makes his calls he uses so the
1: murdoch name yeah, so yeah, yeah. pull pulls some strings yeah yeah no, it's a lot there 's a lot of that. Yeah, well, we'll let you go in a minute. It's been lovely to chat, yeah. but
0: to end it off a little bit, what do you think is next for both Rupert Murdoch mm-hmm. and in terms of succession, James Lachlan, someone else, Elizabeth makes a comeback? Who knows? Uh, and also, what's next for yourself?
1: Yeah, well, for I mean, my understanding is that Rupert supposedly is is working from home and he's taken a step back, and and Lachlan's in sort of the hot seat. Um, and Rupert's on a, you know, a mega yacht or something with his new paramour. Um, As
3: one does. <laughs> but I, you know, the, the
1: part of the whole story of, of this book is how he gets to a point where the whole company and the whole Murdoch story really is about sort of one man control and asserting that absolute control. And that's the kind of model that he built this company over. And even if he wasn't micromanaging every corner of the empire, he sort of had this top down model where every chain of command kind of knows, like they know. They know the the score really, so they yeah. don't have to ask, or Ripper doesn't have to tell them how to do it. So the idea that he would just, you know, put on his out of office um, email and go hang out on the yacht and not have, you know, be a phone call away, I think I'd be very surprised if that's what's happening today. Um, but then you know that story about him being on a yacht with his new love interest, who was apparently he was introduced to by Wendy Deng, his ex-wife, who has there's. A lot of animus between her and Lachlan, and Lachlan's the heir apparent. So who uh, who knows? That's a that's a question for that's a question for (laughs) Paddy Manning, the author of the Lachlan book, to get into. There we go (laughs) uh, with his uh, hopefully big legal team. Um, uh, But yeah, uh, so yeah, we I'll be waiting to see what happens, like everyone else, and seeing how the how the the sort of the front end of this book ending that I've set up in this book plays out at the end. but yeah, as as for me, I um, I don't know, I'm just gonna be talking about <laughs> <laughs> the early years for a while, and uh, I go. don't think I don't think my my next book will be old Rupert though. I think I've I've a different type middle aged Rupert. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, it has been so great to chat. It's we been a pleasure. really glad that you took the time because um, I got this email a few months ago. Lachlan forwarded me, like, your release. Murdoch. The- not Murdoch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> not my Lachlan God. Murdoch.
3: Plot twist. No, Our no. news content Our producer. Our news content producer, it's him. He said, oh, yeah, this is happening in August. And I was like, oh, that sounds really good. And then, you know, it sat in my inbox and then yeah. got to a couple of weeks ago. He was like you should go for this. And I was like, yeah, that sounds sick. So I'm really glad that it eventually ended because this has been a really fun interview. Absolutely. And well, as
1: a proud product of, of student radio and community media, always <laughs> yeah. happy to, to jump on the air with, the, you know, the big printout of the media law, <laughs> <laughs> sign how not to get sued. I hope we've, uh, we've done it proud today.
3: Fingers crossed. All Please right. stay
1: away from us, Lachlan Murdoch's media team.
0: <laughs> and of but course, everyone else who's yeah.
3: listening, and if you're Lachlan Murdoch, you're welcome to listen for the rest of the show yeah. too. Not to sue us. we will be back after a few songs. You are listening to Represent here on Sin.
1: You've been listening to a Sin media podcast where young people run the show.